It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. Hey, why are we in a fire? This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave a jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of Doom. That's right. And Bloom. That's right. Absolutely, friends and neighbors. <laughs> Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a time of temperance in a terrible world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And together we are the medical matrimony, the (laughs) beauty and the beast, the queen and the codger, the geezer and the goddess. Oh my gosh, we're all those things. And we're here to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, (laughs) have you been injured in an accident? With a scurrilous squirrel, well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists, nor is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and, of course, wherever it is available. That's right. You certainly want modern medicine on your side in the war against disease and all the other horrible slings and arrows that life may throw at you. But... What if that is just not an option due to some major disaster, something that takes society to the brink? Well, you might just end up being the highest medical asset left to your family in times of trouble. Does that scare you? Well, it shouldn't scare you. It doesn't have to scare you. Show the world you got more sense than a box of frogs and get some training. Learn something. And while you're at it, how about some supplies and a quality medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? I can't think of a better place to get it than Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you deal with medical issues you'll face in any disaster, make your workplace, school, or church safer, and they're designed by a real-life medical doctor and 
an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff. You'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, don't take our word for it. Check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net. See what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits. And on top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings account. Just let us know you... Oh, wait, you actually have now a health savings account page page a specific category for fsa and hsa absolutely and the thing is that those programs like their items to be called something common so with our kits i had special names you know sometimes it would have the word survival sometimes trauma what i did was i basically took our kits the way they are and i just gave them a cleaner name so that all of the kits start with the words first aid kit. Okay, good. And so when you purchase these items from that particular category, the listed item that you have purchased starts with the words first aid kit. And this makes it very clear for the HSA and the FSA accounts that you have purchased a first aid kit, which is 100% covered and available for purchase using those funds. So if you have a a credit card from them or an account card, you can use that directly in the store to purchase those items. And there should be absolutely no question as to whether you bought a first aid kit or not. Awesome. (laughs) So you won't need a special receipt. If anyone does have any issues, um, I can give them another receipt. But this has been working out great. People are very happy, and they have used their HSA cards. Right. It's good to get some benefit out of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're not different kits. They are the same kits. They just have cleaner names for receipt purposes. That's the government for you. Trying to help out simple, there. Simple, simple, simple. <laughs> well, I hope. because not, not that they're simple, simple, simple. It was a, as complex as they get. Well, hey, you know what? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So give us a ring thing and connect with the old geezer and the beautiful goddess. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can connect, contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. Like, follow, check out our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy, which has a new video on our upcoming, or I shouldn't say upcoming, it's available, new book. Oh, yeah. Which I know you're going to talk about. Absolutely. The new book is called Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings. And that is now up on Amazon. You can order it at our store as well. And it is a detailed book about the use of antibiotics in the fish and avian categories, the ones that we've been writing about for many years. First, doctor and nurse practitioner certainly to write about them. And it tells you a little bit about well, it actually doesn't tell you a little bit. It tells you a lot about how, how to use them in austere settings if you absolutely had to. Of course, this is meant for times of trouble, not meant for when there's a modern medical system functioning. Functioning, yes. That's right. But it is something that could save lives in situations where you're off the grid and you have infectious disease. We also talk about infectious disease a lot. It's in the title after all and so <laughs> we talk about a lot of the infectious diseases that antibiotics will treat and how to recognize them and it's um, 
about 320 pages or so, and it is something that concentrates on antibiotics that are available to the average person, like I've been writing about and, and you've been writing about for, for many years, mm-hmm. and gives you a lot of good basics, goes into a lot of detail uh, about drugs in general, things that you need to know. So, of course, a person that's not medically trained having antibiotics on hand in disaster set, even in disaster settings, that's considered pretty controversial by the conventional medical wisdom for good reason. But you know what? If there's no ambulance coming to render aid or any hospital to treat the sick because something has happened, you might be the end of the line when it comes to the well-being of your loved ones. So, you know what? Just as learning to how to stop bleeding is important, learning about infection and the medicines that treat it will save lives in difficult times. So you won't, will not regret having Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease in your survival library. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the outbreak of food poisonings. There have been a lot of multi-state events, and I'll tell you that E. coli, the and the funny thing about E. coli is that you have it right now in your gut, and it does good things for you in general in terms of uh, digesting your food, helping you digest your food. But the problem is, is there are some strains that are very toxic. And there's one strain specifically called 0157 or 0157 H7. And that one produces a toxin. And that toxin is called Shiga, S-H-I-G-A, which can cause a pretty severe food poisoning. And sure enough, that's the outbreak that's occurred in romaine lettuce just recently has hospitalized 43 people in 11 U.S. states and other 18, at least maybe more in Canada. And that's according to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And uh, luckily, no deaths reported as of yet, but one individual has developed kidney failure. So, I mean, it is something that's serious and could certainly get you very, very sick. And the CDC advisors uh, say that U.S. consumers should avoid eating romaine lettuce for now and that restaurants and grocery stores are recommended to stop selling any products that contain the popular uh, leafy green. I mean, a lot of people eat romaine lettuce. If you have Caesar salads, things like that, any salad mix will probably have some romaine lettuce in it. So their recommendations include whole heads of romaine lettuce as well as pre-cut lettuce mixes, Things like that. It goes so far as to recommend throwing away any romaine products that you may have in your refrigerator and, matter of fact, and sanitizing refrigerator shelving. And that's not just for those 11 states. That's for the entire country. That's a pretty amazing thing for them to do, really, because if you think about all the people that eat romaine lettuce, and there have been, what, 43 uh instances in the United States where people got infected and had had to be hospitalized. Well, I'll tell you that, you know, of the millions of people that eat romaine lettuce, those 43 people are causing tens of millions of pounds of this stuff to be thrown away. I guess it's all for the best, but I'm wondering what that's doing to uh, some of these farmers. But in any case, we're talking about the health issues related to it. So the truth of the matter is, is that if it's not available for you, you obviously are not going to be able to get the illness that can come along with it. Uh, Sometimes this is uh, a traveler's type diarrhea. People oftentimes 
associate E. coli with traveler's diarrhea. Others uh, can be much worse. The disease usually starts, by the way, so that you could recognize it within one one to three days after exposure, and people get symptoms like fever and abdominal cramps. They start vomiting. They can even have blood in their bowel movements, and that whole thing lasts about a week. Now, there are antibiotics for it, like azithromycin, uh, bird zithro, uh, fish sulfa, sulfa drugs, and fish flocks, or Cipro. Uh, all of these may be helpful, but it should be noted that the CDC no longer recommends the routine use of antibiotics for this infection because of the possibility of side effects. It does, interestingly enough, suggest Pepto-Bismol instead, two tablets four times a day, as a possible preventative so it's interesting that they do that. They mention that for traveler's diarrhea, but but it may actually be beneficial in some way with regards to this infection, uh, uh, this outbreak as well. Now, over the years, the frequency of multi-state food poisoning outbreaks has increased. I mean, for the five-year period from, I guess, 1995 to 2000, there were about 34 outbreaks of food poisoning that went from state to state, that actually crossed state lines. And that was 34, and that was back then. Now, from 2010 to 2014, there were 120. So from 34 to 120 now, is that because they're actually reporting it more often? Uh, it's hard to say, but the CDC says or that there are more than 100,000 food poisoning hospitalizations pretty much every year. So why does it matter whether food contamination is found in only one state versus a bunch of states? Well, because multi-state outbreaks, they only account for maybe about 3% of food contamination reports, but they cause 56% of all food poisoning deaths. So a matter of severity. And so this is why perhaps the CDC has gone so far as to uh, recommend just removing lettuce, uh, romaine lettuce from the shelf. So... It's thought that these items wind up being infected long before they reach the average person's refrigerator. And sometimes people make mistakes in terms of storage and things like that. And you wind up getting individually sick. But multi-state outbreaks, these infections occur or these contaminations occur well before they reach the refrigerator, probably during processing, maybe as far down the chain as the farm itself. So they are particularly... Uh, significant as an issue. Now, food poisoning events, these are difficult to pinpoint due to the time between the exposure to contamination and the start of symptoms. You know, truthfully, if an incubation period before you get sick is three days, a week, well, what food caused your illness? And try to remember everything you ate during the last week. I mean, you'll see what I mean. It's all, I, I couldn't remember everything, so you probably couldn't either. Still, the truth is we are learning lessons as we investigate the growing number of multi-state outbreaks. There's a lot of new technology that identifies now, now the DNA blueprint of contaminated foods. For example, they've identified that this romaine lettuce outbreak with this bacteria is the same one that sickened people in 2017. So this is a way that they can sort of map out where the, this food may be coming from and perhaps nip a problem in the bud. So, you know, those better records of whether, where a farm or a factory's food is heading also makes it easier to identify the source and, you know, hopefully prevent some of these outbreaks. 
Of course, there are recalls, food recalls. They recall a lot of romaine lettuce, uh, discard food alerts like the one that they just uh, put out. They actually may prevent hospitalizations, and you could save save lives. So you're saying, well, okay, that's great, but this isn't something that pertains to survival. Well, you know what? You are wrong. As a medic, you're the guy that needs to keep people healthy, and to do that, you have to prevent food poisoning with bacteria that causes cholera and typhoid fever, not to mention viruses that cause things like, gosh, Ebola for Pete's sake, you know, undercooked food, eating bats and stuff like that and not cooking them well. Uh, I don't know how to cook a bat well myself. Well, you know, they can call that, they think they caught that caused the outbreak of Ebola in 19, uh, in 2014 in West Africa. So you might not think it's survivally enough for a, a prepper or survivalist to know this stuff, but you know what? Having that attitude, that's just going to lead to a lot, a whole lot of dead survivalists. So what can you do to prevent food poisoning? Well, you should remember these four words, clean, separate, cook, and chill. C-S-C-C, clean, separate, cook, and chill. Now, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, one in six Americans are going to get sick from food poisoning this year alone. And, of course, we mentioned 100,000 hospitalizations nationwide. There is a program called Food Safe Families, and it advises you how to properly deal with issues that can lead to contamination and sickness. And so these recommendations are pretty useful in normal times, but many of them also pertain to off-the-grid scenarios. And so let's talk a little bit about them. Clean. Of course, it's important to wash hands and food preparation surfaces often. You'd be surprised how persistent many microbes can be on things like cutting boards if you don't clean them frequently. And standard techniques to keep clean include washing your hands correctly. It sounds simple, right? But you have to wet your hands with water and regular soap. They no longer recommend antibacterial soap. Uh, It doesn't matter whether the the water is hot or cold. By the way, it doesn't matter at all because you can't, can't get to the temperature and you know, without burning your hand, that would actually kill bacteria. And we're basically trying to wash them off your hands. So you're rubbing your hands together to make a lather. You scrub them well, the back of your hands, between your fingers, under your nails, just like I did every time uh, or just before doing surgery. There's a special way that you scrub your hands, and that's the truth, that there are bacteria that can hide out in all sorts of little crevices, so you really have to do a good job. And you should do it for at least 20 seconds. Um, you probably don't have a timer, so just hum happy birthday to yourself twice from beginning to end, and you'll probably have your 20 seconds right there. Now, you want to rinse your hands well under running water then. You want to dry your hands using a clean towel or air dry it. And you need to do this pretty often during the day. You only need to do it before eating food. You need to do it before, during, and after preparing food before or after treating a cut or a wound, whether it's yours or someone else's, before or after caring for someone that's sick, after handling uncooked eggs, raw meat, poultry, seafood, or any of the juices involved with that. And of course, after blowing your nose or coughing or sneezing or touching animals or animal waste and garbage, after using the toilet, you should know, you should know these things. And so that means that you're going to be washing your hands a lot during the day while you possibly can. So if you can do that, then you should do it reg- as regularly and as frequently as you can. Of course, you want to wash wash surfaces and utensils. 
after each use, bacteria could be spread throughout the kitchen and get into cutting boards and other things. You, you want to use paper towels or clean cloths to wipe up uh, kitchen surfaces or spills. you got to wash those cloth, cloths in the hot cycle of your washing machine. Some people put them in the microwave, and that may work also. Uh, wash cutting boards. The cutting boards actually is sort of important because, you know what, with cutting boards, they have these little grooves in them where your knife actually cut through and may, and, and those little grooves can certainly harbor a lot of bacteria. The bacteria can make their own ecosystem in the grooves of a cutting board. Now as an extra precaution, you can use the solution of, let's say, one tablespoon of unscented liquid chlorine bleach and a gallon of water and to sanitize these, un, these surfaces and utensils. That's a way that you could possibly do it if you wound up off the grid if you're able to make some chlorine bleach or uh, even use pool shock to make bleach and then use then use that bleach in water to put together a, a good cleaning solution. With regards to fruits and veggies, you want to wash them. But the interesting thing is they don't recommend washing meat, poultry, or eggs. Now, did you know that even if you plan to peel fruits and vegetables, that it's important to wash them first because bacteria can spread from the outside of the peel to the inside as you are cutting or peeling them. If you're peeling a, an orange with your hands, you're touching the peel and then touching the orange, it, it, the meat of the orange or whatever pulp of the orange itself. So this is what you need to do to wash all your produce effectively. You want to cut away any damaged or bruised areas. You want to rinse produce under running water. Don't use soap, detergent, bleach, or any commercial produce washes. If you have firm produce, things like, um, trying to think, uh, melons or cucumbers, well, you might want to scrub them. Actually, there are produce brushes that will allow you to scrub firm produce, uh, and they actually recommend it. The FDA recommends it. The U.S. Department of Agriculture recommends it. Who really has that? I think very, very few people. Um, you want to dry produce with a paper towel or a clean cloth towel when you're done. Some people say you don't have to wash produce that's marked pre-washed, that it's safe to use without further washing. Actually, even the USDA says that, but the truth of the matter is, I don't know. I'm a little scared about that myself, and so I might want to wash them again just to be on the safe side, especially seeing all these uh, increases in uh, food poisoning outbreaks. Now, Look, I mentioned earlier that you don't have to wash meat, poultry, and eggs. Well, and why is that? Washing raw meat and poultry actually helps bacteria spread because their juices splash onto and contaminate your sink and your countertops. Now, eggs, by the way, they're all normally washed before sale, so any extra handling of the eggs, such as washing, may actually may increase the risk of cross-contamination, especially if you crack the shell accidentally. So that's something that is thought to be not necessary to do. Uh, so some things you have to wash, some things you don't have to wash. Now, the second thing, that was just the cleaning part of clean, separate, cook, and chill. Separate them. What they're trying to get to with separate, they want you to separate, not cross-contaminate. So let's see why it matters to separate out foods. Even after you've cleaned your hands and your surfaces thoroughly, raw meat, poultry, seafood, eggs, things like that can still spread illness-causing bacteria to ready-to-eat foods unless you keep them separate. 
but what foods do you need to keep separate and how? Well, you want to follow these tips. You want to use separate cutting boards and plates for produce and for meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs. So poultry, produce is different than meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs. So you want to have at least two cutting boards. You want to know that placing ready-to-eat food on a surface that held raw meat or poultry or seafood or eggs can spread bacteria and make you sick. But all you have to do is just make sure that you use separate cutting boards, you use separate plates and utensils for cooked and raw foods. But before using them again, always thoroughly wash your plates, utensils, and cutting boards that held any of this stuff, raw meat and stuff like that. Once a cutting board gets really worn, you want to get rid of it because, like I said, the microbes can make their own little ecosystem, the grooves, they can live there and can cause all sorts of issues. You should keep you should keep meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs separate from all other foods, even at the grocery store. So basically, you want to make sure you're not contaminating foods in your grocery bag. And you do that by separating the raw meat, the poultry, the seafood, and eggs from other foods in your shopping cart. Keep them separate. At the checkout, place raw meat and anything like that in plastic bags to keep their juices from dripping on other foods. Now there are a lot of plastic bags that you'll find right next. They used to have them just with the produce. Now they have them with the meats. So once you get these meats home, you want to keep them separate from any other food that you have in the fridge. Bacteria can spread inside the fridge if the juices from this stuff drip onto your other foods. Uh, you just have to place all this stuff in, let's say, a sealed plastic bag to prevent their juices from dripping or leaking onto other foods. And if you're not planning to use these foods in a few days, what you need to do is freeze them. Now, freeze them immediately as you get home. Um, I think that you should keep your eggs in their original carton, store them in the main compartment of the refrigerator, which is colder, not in the door. Everybody has an area where their eggs go on the door. Well, the truth is it's probably better to keep them in the main compartment of the refrigerator. Now, then you want to cook. Well, what about cooking? Now, that is where it really matters. Now, did you know that the bacteria that cause food poisoning multiply quickest in a danger zone between 40 and 140 degrees Fahrenheit. So higher than the temperature of your refrigerator, lower than the temperature of cooking, that's when they get colonized with all sorts of things like salmonella. And while many people think they can tell when food is done by just by looking at its color and its texture, there's actually no way to be absolutely sure unless you have a food thermometer. Cooked food is safe only after it's been heated to a high enough temperature to kill the harmful bacteria that usually is in that particular type of food. Color and texture alone doesn't tell you, so you want to use that food thermometer. You have to use it correctly, though. When you think your food's done, you place the food thermometer in the thickest part of the meat part, not the bone, not touching the bone, not touching the fat, not touching the gristle, the meat, and see what the temperature is. You want to wait the amount of time that the thermometer tells you to wait, some foods, by the way, need also to wait a few minutes after cooking to make sure that the harmful germs are killed. Uh, the, usually about three minutes is enough. During the rest time, the temperature, the temperature remains constant or continues to rise even, and that destroys harmful germs. So after you take it out, some, some things really need 
a, a few minutes of rest time before you actually eat them. That would include things like steaks, uh, roasts, uh, chops, that, uh, let's see, fresh pork, fresh ham. Also, those things would be important. And I think that that's, those are the main things, especially beef and pork are the main issues. So what's the appropriate temperature for all this stuff? Ground meat, meat mixtures, 160 degrees. Turkey and chicken, 165 degrees. So pretty much poultry, that includes duck, goose, things like that, 165 degrees. Steaks, roast, chops, beef, basically 145 degrees. Unless it's ground beef and then you want it at about 160. And ground pork as well is 145. uh, Ground pork is 160. Fresh pork is 145 so this, this is what you actually really need to, to do. Egg dishes, about, probably about 160. Uh, casseroles, about 165. Fish, about 145. Or cook until the flesh is opaque and separates easily with a fork. That's important. Uh, shrimp, lobster, and crabs, you want to cook them until the f- flesh is pearly and opaque. Clams, oysters, and mussels, you cook them until their shells open during the cooking. And scallops, you want to cook them until the flesh becomes this milky white or uh, at least, and you sort of want them opaque and firm. Now, the funny thing is that a lot of people like these really rare, but you have to realize there is a somewhat higher chance to develop issues with food contamination the more rare the food is. Of course, you want to clean your food thermometer after use with hot soapy water. That's important. Uh, now, many of you guys use your microwave a lot to cook most of your food. It's important to microwave food thoroughly, and that is 265 degrees again to make, uh, in, in most cases, to make sure that harmful bacteria have been killed in your foods. You've got to just make sure that you're using the microwave correctly. When you use your microwave, you stir your food in the middle of heating. Take it out, stir it so that the food is cooked evenly, and then put it back in the microwave. If the food label says let's stand for X number of minutes after cooking, well, do it for that amount of standing time. If you can do that, it actually helps your food cook more completely. It allows colder areas of food sometimes to absorb heat from the hotter areas of food, and that extra minute or two could mean the difference between a good meal and getting sick. After waiting a few minutes, you want to check the food with a food thermometer. Even if it's in the microwave, you'd like it about 165 degrees or more. Now, that's the cooking part. Now, the last part is chilling. You want to refrigerate your food promptly. And and why it matters? Well, because illness-causing bacteria can grow in all sorts of perishable food within two hours unless you refrigerate them. That is absolutely no time at all. And if the temperature is 90 degrees or higher in the summer, well, you know, and you have that food in your car, you're doing errands after going to the grocery store, cut that time down to one hour. So the truth of the matter is, is that anybody who goes to the grocery store and then goes and does their errands, well, honestly, you really need to rethink your schedule. You You need to get your itinerary so that you're shopping for perishable food should occur at the end of all your errands. That's very important. You want to refrigerate that food once you get home promptly. And if you can do that, uh, by the way, it's about one hour that that food will last 
just sitting out in the summer uh, if before it gets colonized. Just one hour. That's amazing. Now, the way you pack your refrigerator, that is actually really important. If you're going to properly chill food and slow bacterial growth, you have to have cold air circulating in your refrigerator. It's hard to do that if you've overstuffed your refrigerator. Never have it overstuffed so that the cold air doesn't circulate. Your refrigerator should be between uh, 40 degrees centigrade. No, 40 degrees, I'm sorry. Fahrenheit centigrade would be pretty darn hot. 40 degrees Fahrenheit and 32 degrees Fahrenheit. You want to have some way to identify what the exact temperature is. Most refrigerators now have an appliance thermometer let you know if the fridge is cold enough. You want perishable foods in the fridge within a short period of time. Do not wait. Remember to store leftovers also within a couple of hours as well. By dividing leftovers into several clean, shallow containers, they chill faster, and that makes them safer. If for freezing, you can freeze almost any food. That doesn't mean the food will be good to eat, though, or safe. Freezing salads, for example, big mistake. It really does not help that at all. It makes it almost uneatable. Freezing does not destroy harmful bacteria, but it does keep food safe until you can cook it. Your freezer should be at zero degrees Fahrenheit or below. The Again, the appliance thermometers will help you figure that out. You do not want to thaw or marinate foods on the counter. I see a lot of people do this. A lot of people naturally do this for uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving turkeys, things like that. It's, uh, unfortunately, bacteria can multiply rapidly at room temperature and Thawing and marinating foods on the counter is one of the riskiest things you can do when preparing food for your family. Now, to thaw food safely, you got to choose some other options. So you want to thaw in the refrigerator, perhaps. This is the safest way to thaw meat and poultry and seafood. You want to take the food out of the freezer, place it on a plate or pan that can catch any juices that may leak, and put it in the fridge. You should be ready to use the next day. So you have to do a little planning here in that case. You could thaw it in cold water. For faster thawing, you can put the frozen package in a watertight plastic bag and submerge it in cold water. That has a tendency to do that uh, a little faster. Be sure to change the water, however, about every 30 minutes or so. If you do that, then you want to cook the food immediately once it is thawed. And also, same thing with the microwave. Many people thaw things in the microwave. You could certainly do that quickly, and that's great. But as with thawing cold water, food thawed in the microwave should be cooked immediately. Now, if you cook things without thawing, you could cook things that are frozen. Well, that actually, believe it or not, it's actually safe to cook foods from a frozen state. But your cooking time will be approximately 50% longer, the USDA says, says, than a fully thawed meat or poultry. So that's important. If you marinate food, well, you want to marinate it in the refrigerator. That's important. And the other important thing is you have to know when to throw food out. You can't tell just by looking or smelling whether harmful bacteria start growing in your leftovers, those lunch meats or whatever. Uh, you got to know what's going on. But how long is that? And it depends on the item. Now, here's some examples. Things like salads are good for about three to five days. Um, doesn't, and, of course, they don't freeze well, so you, that, those are going to be refrigerated items. Uh, hot dogs, 
if they're opened or unopened, the package is open or unopened, makes the difference. Uh, at the, in the refrigerator, they'll last about a week. In the freezer, it'll last one or two months. An unopened package will last two weeks in the refrigerator, about one or two months in the freezer. Uh, lunch meats, three to five days if you opened a package or you have deli-sliced meats. Well, that's about three to five days that they're good. And the refrigerator, if the package is unopened, about two weeks. That's really about it. And I'll tell you, I probably have made the mistake of eating older lunch meat than that, that maybe I had not opened yet. Well, I think that might be a mistake that I personally have made. Now, the freezer, one to two months. For lunch meats, bacon and sausage, about one to two months. In the freezer, uh, sausage, bacon, um, any t- by the way, that's any type, whether it's from beef, chicken, pork, whatever. Uh, in the refrigerator, bacon's about good for about seven days, but sausage, probably only good for one or two days. Hamburger, same thing, one or two days. Um, steaks and chops, about three to five days. Interestingly enough, these meats will last longer. Hamburger meat, if it's frozen, lasts three to four months in the refrigerator. Um, uh Fresh steaks, chops, veal, lamb, pork, they'll last actually longer, 6 to 12 months in some cases for steaks, for chops 4 to 6 months, uh, roasts about 4 to 12 months. Fresh poultry, frozen, one, to two, one year, up to one year, that'll stay, especially if it's a whole chicken, one to two days if it is in the refrigerator. Big difference. So chicken or turkey, if you have them cut up into pieces, it'll last a little less, maybe nine months in the freezer, still one to two days in the refrigerator. Vegetables in soup, for example, or uh, if or stews, you would have maybe, they're good about three to four days. Uh, if they're frozen, two to, four, two to three months. And leftovers, three to four days pretty much for just about everything, even pizza, for example. If you have a frozen pizza, it'll last about one to two months. And the same thing with, uh, let's say, frozen chicken nuggets, about one to two, one to three months, and so on and so on. So that, that's a good, I guess, variety that you can look at and see what would be appropriate. Now, there are a lot of myths involved in food safety. And, of course, we all do our best to keep our families healthy. And by following some of the things that the USDA recommends, but there are a number of different myths. Myth number one, that food poisoning isn't that big a deal. Just have to tough it out for a day or so, and then it's over. So it's not worth all this effort that I just put you through to avoid food poisoning because it's not a big deal. But the truth is, is that there are just too many people that end up in the hospital as a result of this. There there are about 3,000 Americans a year that die from foodborne illness. And I'll tell you one thing, in any situation where you're off the grid, well, you're going to have that multiplied exponentially. So that is really crazy. Uh, Myth number two, okay to thaw meat on the counter. We sort of talked about that. Uh, It starts out frozen. And so, therefore... People think bacteria is not a problem when the truth of the matter is bacteria just grow super fast at room temperatures, so never thaw your foods on the counter. Uh, Myth number three, when cleaning my kitchen, the more bleach I use, the better. More bleach kills more bacteria, so it's safer. There's actually 
the truth is there's really no advantage to using more bleach than you need just basically a teaspoon in a gallon of water is probably plenty or a tablespoon in a gallon of water you could do that uh, but that's about it I would think that that would be good make sure to use unscented bleach that's important myth number four you don't have to wash fruits and vegetables if you're gonna peel them we talked about that it's so easy to transfer bacteria from the peel or the rind if you're cut that you're cutting and then you touch the inside of the fruits and it's all for naught so it doesn't matter that it doesn't matter that it has a rind or a peel it does not protect you from contaminating that with your hands Myth number five, to get rid of any bacteria on meat, poultry, or seafood, rinse the juices off with water. The funny thing is that doing that with water actually increases your chance of food poisoning because it splashes juices all over the place. Again, something we mentioned. Uh, the only, uh, here's another myth, the only reason to let food sit after it's been microwaved is to make sure you don't burn yourself on food that's too hot. But the truth of the matter is if you let microwave food sit for a few minutes, that actually helps your food cook more completely. And so don't feel like you have to eat that microwave food right away. In a few minutes, it actually will be safer than if you just grabbed it and ate it already. And also you might burn yourself. Myth number seven, leftovers are safe to eat unless they smell bad. Well, the truth of the matter is there are a lot of bacteria that do not affect the look, smell, or taste of food, especially in the early stages. So just make sure that you know safe storage times. We talked about quite a few of them here, and I'm going to put up an article in the near future that will have a chart for you. So that's something that will be useful. Uh, myth number eight, once food has been cooked, all the bacteria have been killed, so I don't have to worry about it once it's done. Well... The truth is, is that the drop in temperature after after cooking actually makes bacterial growth increase quickly. I mean, once the bacteria colonize and they're in warm food, you know, well, the truth is that that's actually a, a really good environment for them to to multiply. So that's why keeping cooked food warm to the right temperature is so critical for food safety. Uh, myth number nine, marinades are acidic, which kills bacteria, so it's okay to marinate food on the counter. That is not true. You always want to marinate food in the refrigerator because even in the presence of acid, there are some bacteria that like an acid environment. A lot of bacteria can grow rapidly at room temperatures, so to marinate food safely, marinate them in the refrigerator. Last myth, if I want, really want my produce to be safe, I should wash fruits and veggies with soap or detergent. That is ridiculous. I'm reading, I've been reading these myths, and some of them seem silly to me. It's really best not to use soaps or detergents on produce. These products stay on foods and can actually have be toxic to you. So you obviously don't want to do that. Clean running water, actually the best way to remove bacteria and make sure that your produce are safe. Now, there's sometimes a simple mistake can have grave consequences. Uh, what may seem like a small food safety mistake can cause serious illness, especially when it comes to some germs like salmonella. With salmonella, all it takes is about 15 to 20 cells in undercooked food to cause food poisoning. 15 to 20 cells, in other words, bacterial cells, to 
cause food poisoning. Just a tiny taste of food with things like botulism toxin can actually cause paralysis, could even kill you. So this is something that is pretty crazy. So things that are important to know, cooked meat should never be placed on a plate that held raw meat. That is so important. Just spread it to the cooked meat and because the temperature is warmer, not not and as as it cools down and it's just warm food instead of hot food it actually increases the rate of bacterial growth so that's something that's very important do not eat raw dough or cookie dough or other foods with uncooked eggs or uncooked flour raw dough and uncooked eggs can have things like e coli salmonella other harmful bacteria you always want to bake flour and cook eggs thoroughly avoid foods that contain raw and un- undercooked eggs, raw dough, away f- should always be away from children, wash hands, work surfaces, utensils, thoroughly after contact with flour and raw dough products. That's important. Well, it's clear that we certainly have outbreaks that could become epidemics, but we haven't really seen pandemics that have been killing a lot of people that we would think at least we haven't but the truth is we have we've had pandemics of malaria throughout the tropical parts of the world and kills lots lots and lots of people there are all sorts of other pandemics that may not kill kill people like zika which traveled from africa and asia and the south uh, sea islands to brazil and places like that caused damage to children that were uh, newborn babies in terms of their brain capacity and things like that. Then chikungunya virus, which also isn't a killer, but also can cause long-standing issues with joint joint pain and things like that. So there are a number of different bugs that have indeed caused pandemics in the last few years, but nothing that has killed millions and millions of people to the extent of, let's say, the Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919. That was, God, that's 100 years ago. And that is probably the most well-known example of a true pandemic. But truthfully, pandemics have occurred throughout history and at least three or four are identified every century, but more actually in the 20th century than just about any other time. Uh, and certainly there are influenza pandemics pretty much every year as the influenza travels uh, throughout the world. It can even be argued we've experienced many pandemics that we just don't even know about as of yet. Now, there are a lot of them that occurred in time that are sort of famous pandemics. Uh, they came with regularity even in ancient times, and a number of them became infamous because of their deadly nature, but also their effect on Western civilization. So the Great Plague of Athens is one of them. I want to tell you about that one. That took place between the years 430 and 426 B.C. It was um, during a time where when Athens was at war with Sparta. And that particular one arose in Africa, they think. But once it came to Greece, it actually killed a third of the Athenian population, probably an estimated 300,000 people throughout the Mediterranean. And it's thought to have actually brought about the end of the Greek Golden Age. People that wrote about this disease at the time, well, it was a pretty crazy disease. Uh, let's see, the symptoms included high fever, blistered skin, vomiting green fluid, bil- that's called bilious vomiting, 
intestinal ulcerations and diarrhea. Pretty bad stuff, and it's unknown what disease caused the epidemic. Might have been typhus or some weird kind of typhoid fever. They think that it might have been prime, a prime candidate typhoid fever, but it's hard to really say. It doesn't include some of the things that they mention here. But, of course, those reports don't have to be accurate. There was another plague that was in ancient times, this time during Roman times, called the Antonine Plague. And that was a name for the Roman emperor that we know best as Marcus Aurelius, but his full name was Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. And the outbreak began in 165 AD, about 500 years after the Great Plague of Athens. It lasted about 15 years, killing about 5 million people. For, and they think that it might have been smallpox. It might have begun, they think, in modern-day Iraq and spread all the way to Rome by soldiers that were returning from campaigns. Uh, of course, 165 AD was uh, an era of great power for Rome, uh, dominant throughout the world. They had soldiers all over their empire. At one point during the pandemic, they think that uh, they think that probably thousands of Romans died each day, and the emperor himself is thought to have died from it as well. Then another 500 years, let's move up a little, a few hundred years more, and we have the plague of Justinian. In the year 541 AD, the rats from Egyptian grain boats brought a pestilence to the Eastern Roman Empire that would eventually kill 25 million people. Even the Emperor Justinian of the Holy Roman Empire, for whom the plague was named, was infected. He actually survived. But as many as 5,000 people died every day in the capital city of Constantinople. Before the outbreak was over, about 40% of the population was dead, so many and so quickly that their bodies were just left unburied to rot in piles. It just is incredible. I think the entire Mediterranean coast lost about a quarter of its population. They think that was the first recorded incidence of bubonic plague. And of course, I can't not mention the bubonic plague, the Black Death of the Middle Ages, bubonic plague came to the west via sea lanes in the 14th century and from 1347 to 1351 it basically depopulated Europe actually most of the world 75 to 150 million deaths are attributed to it at a time when there were only 450 million people on the planet and so half of Europe half of Europe died in a span of only four years just incredible stuff uh, the rest of the middle ages of course was racked with waves of plague pandemics and and became known as the Black Death for the color of lumps that people developed in the armpits and groins. And gosh, it was so devastating that although it's been hundreds of years since the last pandemic of plague, most people in modern times actually have heard of the plague. You have heard of the plague out there. And we haven't had anything that has matched it except maybe for, in modern times, except for maybe the Spanish flu of 100 years ago, and that is thought to have actually caused World War I to end, in a sense, because the new strain of influenza called the Spanish flu, although it didn't come from Spain, uh, appeared almost simultaneously in the, uh, multiple countries throughout the world. The disease spread quickly because of the cramped conditions that troops on both sides had to endure. And indeed, the problems it caused probably helped bring about the end of hostilities. So I guess... That may have been a good thing, but unfortunately, the, the World War I did not kill 100 million people, which 
indeed it's thought that the Spanish flu actually did. So anywhere from 3 to 20% of the people afflicted from the Spanish flu died of the disease, and uh, a good half of them probably just in the first few months of the outbreak. So it was an incredible situation, and I guess if you have enough people that are sick, you just can't fight a war, and it's a, a high price to pay for ending a war, but that's indeed what happened. And, and these pandemics have all made differences in history. So infectious disease, like what we write about in Alton's uh, infectious disease, uh, Antibiotics and Infectious Disease book, well, you know what? It makes a big difference. It is not something to fiddle around with. You need to know about infectious disease, and you need to be able to treat it when it's possible. And you, we also write about, by the way, how to put together an effective sick room. We talk about the kinds of medical supplies you should have to equip your sick room, how to function maintaining it so that you keep the people healthy, that are healthy, and then keep people that are sick recovering and moving along to a full recovery. This is probably all the time we have. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton and Amy Alton. Amy, unfortunately, had to do some family business. So I hope you put up with me without too much trouble. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.